0: Welcome to the AWP 2020 podcast by Bloomsday Literary and Effing Shakespeare, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams, Fu Lu, and Lily Wolf. Narrated by Michael Julius Y. Adani.
1: It definitely is and probably will get harder. I, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to think that, you know, writing will become our salvation in the next few years.
2: Professor Emeritus from the University of Tennessee, San Antonio. University of Texas. University of, what did I say? Tennessee.
3: <laughs> we're in Tennessee. We're, tired. we're
4: very
5: tired. <laughs> all of Daniel's work.
6: Yeah. No, I, I'll, I'll, I, I, I get a little... We heavily edit yeah. Daniel's work. There's
5: nothing better than just highlighting a bad joke you told and you're like, delete Click. never happens. Unsavory Goodbye.
7: joke. <laughs>
2: all right. You guys, Daniel Pena just is taking over the mics. We have Annalena Phillips-Bell here to start us off on day two at AWP. And I wanted to ask, how has your AWP been going? It's been great.
8: It's been an interesting one, hasn't it? I'm so well sanitized. (laughs) Um, It feels really chill, which is refreshing, actually. It is. I agree. Yeah. Nice. And you're here with... With Ecotone, the literary magazine that seeks to reimagine place, and with our sister imprint, Lookout Books, and, of course, the creative writing program at UNC Wilmington.
2: Where you are a professor.
8: Mm -hmm. That's right.
2: Mm -hmm. Very, very cool. And we have a good friend who knows you well, Cameron Dazen Hammond, a friend of the show and a fellow Houstonian. And Lookout Books published her gorgeous memoir last Mm -hmm. year, right? That's right. october That's right. We're so happy about it. Yeah, and you guys—you guys do. Lookout does one book a year, is that right? Mm-hmm. And the next one will come out in October as well.
8: Let me get back to you on that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry for assuming. Yeah.
8: No, that's fine. These
2: things change and shift. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. For sure, for sure. Tell me—we have lots of things to to ask and talk about. Things. Our colleague who is not here with us this weekend, the inimitable Jessica Cole.
6: Just got Scott Cole.
2: <laughs> Just Scott, Scott Cole. Cole. Somehow she got tagged on Instagram with a fictitious last name, which is funny. So but, we're thinking of all the things we can do with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can we create out of this? We could do something fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He is part poet, part scientist in a former life. Like, she, I believe if she had world enough in time, she would. Go, she So she has a PhD in creative writing, and then an MFA in poetry. So she does already have those two degrees. But I think she would love, love, love to go back and do some sort of science work. And it's just a travesty that she's not here to talk to you because you have a very similar bio and aesthetic in your own poetry and the, in the work that you edit. Can you
8: talk to us a little bit? I guess we could start with Ikatan. Do you want to start talking about that? Sure, yeah. So I'm part poet and part science editor in a former life. (laughs) I worked as an editor at American Scientist magazine for about six years before coming on as editor of Ecotone. And it was so exciting to be able to bring that sensibility of really careful fact checking and thoughtful writing about the natural world and about the sciences and about environment into a literary context, which is of course what Ecotone does among the other things it does. Mm And Ecotone, some people think of us as just a magazine of environmental writing, but really we have a pretty broad mission. We think of place based writing as including writing that thinks about places it relates to identity and places it relates to migration of people and other species around the globe. And so when we see something we like, we can usually find a way to say yes to it as relating to place, mm. which is fun. Yeah, yeah, I could see that.
4: Yeah. How do, so I know we talk about this a lot at Bloomsday about, you know, picking the right pieces and the, the things that fit both, you know, the mission and the aesthetic. And, and we were kind of curious, how, how do you do that with Ecotone? How do you how do you pick the pieces that you know are right and that kind of create that chemistry and that, that really precise beauty?
8: It's an impossible task, isn't it? it is. is. Well, we're lucky at Ecotone to have a really great team. So the magazine, in addition to a mission of publishing work that reimagines place, we also have a teaching Mm -hmm. mission. We teach students in the MFA program at UNCW how to edit and how to design for literary publications. And so what that means is that I supervise a team that includes faculty members, as well as about 15 students in our MFA program. And the editorial part of that team thinks really hard about the work that goes into each issue. We have readers and then we have students who apply to be section editors. And in the section editors meetings that we have, we have lots of really great conversations about what is a fit for the magazine? What does it mean to be an ecotone story or an ecotone poem? And how can we expand that definition to include work that we wouldn't have thought of but that we're happy to know of so we're always looking to be surprised and having that outlook means that we often are it's really right. fun oh, oh my man. gosh i'd love to be in those meetings i was just, just thinking here, i'm going be a going
4: <laughs>
2: <hot>? i know <laughs> wow. wow oh look jessica's calling oh I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you later. She's really cool. I also love this thing that just happened. I don't know are we still recording Foo? where because yes. it just happened five minutes ago where we found out that there are ways that we know people and like people and then find out that our work overlaps so and yeah. then now you're going to school with the daughter of a colleague <laughs> of our guests it's, yes yeah, it's, it's really cool home <laughs> of
6: the day sponsored by melissa crow
2: at last we're moving up in the world in a lot of ways because at last awp we were trying to get ryan reynolds gen company to sponsor us and now we're <laughs> we're going a little bit more in in like a more appropriate direction in the right I vein think. yeah Although if Ryan Reynolds is out there and wants to sponsor us with his gin company, but that was like in Portland. Is that why that was going on? Yes. Yeah, That's why. (laughs) So tell me, we'll get back to actually what we're here to do, which is talk about Ecotone. As I was sitting here thinking about all of the things that you get to do with your students and with your journal, I was thinking about all the hats that we wear as editors and creators, and you're a poet yourself. And you professor. said, and a professor, that too. <laughs> and you said the thing about like having your work fact checked, and that would be such a luxury to have. But then you have students who get to have that experience, I imagine, which is a great lab, sort of.
8: Yeah, it's it's the first thing, one of the first things that students learn to do when they start working on Ecotone. They fact check everything for the magazine, including poetry. It's important to say and they go down all kinds of wormholes and call people on the phone and look things up in scientific journals. And I think every writer deserves that kind of care and attention. And so it's such fun to be able to give that to our contributors.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That I could imagine.
8: Yeah. It's something that we do
2: (laughs) on our own in addition, you know, with without the benefit of a classroom of students. But and it's not just a benefit to you. It's a marketable skill that the students can go out into the world in a very real way and use, which is sometimes hard to come by at MFAs, or especially, particularly MFAs that concentrate a ton on craft and have less to do with what you're going to do on the flip side.
8: I think about that a lot, about the ways that editorial labor and primary production are valued. and. Editors should be in the background, that's true, but it's also true that without that editorial labor, work doesn't make it into the world. And I think there is a shift happening toward valuing that work more, valuing the teaching of editing more, and I'm excited to see it because I think the literary ecosystem depends on it. And my students who want to work as editors, I'd like to be able to reassure them that they can find a way to be writer editors and have a life that is sustainable and reasonable. And sometimes I feel confident about that assurance and other times I just don't. So. <laughs> because you're actually living it too.
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs> so talk about that. Then how, how do you balance that as a professor and a
8: creator? It's hard, but I think that there's no other setting I'd want to do it in than in a university. Being around so many people who are thinking about their craft and thinking about learning the craft of editing made it easier for me to publish my first book just Mm -hmm. because the atmosphere Encouraged it, and I love that, and I love being an encouraging presence for other writers. So even though it's definitely too much, pretty much all the time, yeah. I love it.
2: And it's oh, in the wonderful. it's in the ether. Yeah, yeah,
4: that's yeah, really cool. Yeah. Well, and as far as we're talking about things that aren't necessarily normally focused on or taught in MFAs or even undergrad, um, you you've taught book arts. And you have, you have the uh, pocketbook of forms. It's letter printed, letter press printed. It's very aesthetically pleasing. It's a handy tool for the traveling poet. I want it's to really buy it. Neat.
2: I, I want to hold I, it in my hands. We all
4: want to just like feel it. What do you, what do you think is so cool about teaching that to students? Because it, it, it's a really beautifully arcane art in a, in a world that's moving very
8: digital for you know, literature and poetry. So what draws you to that? I think the tactile quality of it is one of the main things. The feeling that I can set type and print it. And I've had my hands on each letter and mm-hmm. each comma and each space mm-hmm. in the work. It's so fun. And it is impractical. In fact, there's a there's an artist's labor union called... Um, impractical labor in service oh, of the speculative cool. arts, which I'm oh part of, gosh, and, so cool. and the motto for this labor union is, as many hours as it takes, and I really love that, because oh, it does do take mm-hmm. so much time, it takes so much time, but it's so satisfying, and I think what drew me to it originally was that in my poetic practice, there were things that I couldn't do just with the words on the page, mm-hmm. they were like tools I wanted to make like that pocketbook of forms was a tool that I needed and didn't have and so letterpress allowed me to just make it not that it was simple or anything but it was (laughs) possible and to make it in a way that felt really satisfying and slow and beautiful and I think as we move toward more digital work being in the world there is a craving for that for that more physical, like text object type stuff. And so I feel encouraged by the, you know, the great number of online magazines, because I think that doing an online magazine makes it possible to occasionally release some limited edition stuff, like pay more attention to the text if you're doing something smaller, at Ecotone, obviously, we're a print magazine, and I love that about us. But we also do have a letterpress-printed broadside series that I started, where we publish in a broadside a couple of poems from each year of the magazine. Oh my gosh. Wow! Cool. So it, it's really, it's really fun. It's satisfying, and it it suits, it fulfills a purpose.
2: It yeah. strikes me like the or uh, uh, calls to mind the slow food movement from 10, 12 years ago, or. It's, a, it's the same sort of mentality where everything needs to slow down and savor and be present to your food. It, it, it's like that for the literary arts.
8: Exactly. And my when I teach, I teach a course on the handmade book. And when I am able to teach that course, my students are so thankful, one, to not be in front of a screen all the time, to just be using their hands and their bodies to make something. And two, to be able to, like, make something and have it out in the world without an intermediary. I think that's the attraction of self-publishing too probably, sure. but mm-hmm. in the book arts and in the world of zines, it's so direct and so simple. And there's so many interesting book structures that you can use to get different ideas out in the world. So it's just a fun time all the way around. Can I
2: just be your can I just be like a permanent audit <laughs> in your classroom, please?
8: Yeah, come on. Come to Based Wellington. This, this is
2: Kate Martin Williams. She's going to sit in the back of the class. <laughs> for perpetuity just it's okay it's fine (laughs) she's here so and then one sentence love letters was a digital version of something you were talking about being nimble and able to release things limited is that also is that ecotone
8: yeah yeah so our fall winter 2019 issue is themed love our fall issues are all themed our spring ones are unthemed and i was so excited when my team was up for doing a love issue i just want to say <laughs> yes oh. i mean we yes. we need it right now we always need it yes. and it was it was just a dream to work on and so We decided to invite contributors to the issue to write a one-sentence love letter, and we made those into what we're calling digital broadsides to post on Instagram. I saw those. I saw
2: saw them come through. They were so great to have in your feed, too. Oh, Oh, good. Yeah.
8: Yeah, so then we made them into real objects laser printed, not letter pressed, so that people can take Mm -hmm. one with them here at the conference and they can also write their own on a blank one and we'll take a picture and post it online and then, you know, the print and digital world start meshing in this way that messes with my brain a little bit. (laughs) Um, But it's really fun.
2: It is really fun. Can I read the one that you so kindly gave to us? Of course. Um, One sentence love letters. To the sound of my children practicing their ukuleles, I was raised a woodwind... And so could not have dreamed there would be singing
8: to Love, Megan. I love that. That's from Megan Tucker. She has a wonderful short story in the Love Issue. Aww. Could you read us something from
0: sure. that issue?
8: Yeah, absolutely. I'll read a poem from the issue. This is from Jenna Lay. And I should say that for this issue, every poem in the issue is in a 14-line form, which we wanted to do for fun Mm. and because we were about to have our 14th anniversary when we put out the call for work and because these are so freaking clever over there (laughs) yes i think it was my students who had that idea and immediately i was like yes we have to do this Um, so so jenna wrote this poem it's called byerly's fine foods 24 hours edina minnesota The aisles were carpeted in oyster gray with deep blue edging, and they sold a damn good wild rice soup. One service that they offered free of charge, they'd snap your headshot, print it on a card for you to keep inside your pocket. Then, each time you came and whipped it out, they'd gift you with a cookie, chocolate chip. I'd wheedle mom to take me there on midday trips, feast on the face-sized gooey sweetness while she shopped. Like Easter eggs, each tidy, gray-blue aisle was blipped with little plastic boxes stocked with recipes ripe for plucking. First, leave the only home you know and grope across the ocean in a holy hole. Wash up some place it's winter half the year, but where there's banks, fine stores, good schools. Then wait, wait for your children's thanks. Hmm...
2: Emilyna Phillips Bell it is so good to know you and i hope that our paths continue to cross in really great ways thank you so much for being with us today
8: oh thank you for having me it's been a delight
7: you. we're you here with the blazer I'm Daniel Pena. We're here with Paulette Perhatch, uh, author of Welcome to the Writer's Life, How to Design Your Writing Craft, Writing Business, Writing Practice, Reading Practices. Who are you wearing?
5: Hi, I'm wearing uh, sad big box jeans that don't have real pockets. And uh, (laughs) so my goal at this AWP is to become the kind of successful writer who can afford pants with pockets. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think the underclasses have suffered enough.
7: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What are you about?
5: Uh, So I'm all about making a writer's life, figuring it out, enjoying it while you do it. And so I'm an author and writing coach
7: right on. Do you yeah. do you, like, you, you have, do you, like individual consultations, you do uh, workshops or what do you, what do you, do you yeah. yeah, so yeah.
5: I teach at our local writing center in Seattle called Hugo House, which is amazing and then I also do one-on-one anywhere in the world. I have three writing programs. One, we go through the book together, I read your practice answers and we meet once a week and then I do a 10-week program called Your Personal Editor where I am your personal editor, your work is due and I critique it and then I do something called Full Time to Freedom to Write which is about plotting your escape. From the office so that you can be a full-time writer if you right choose. Right on, yeah. man. Dude, what? I want to take this. I know, right? Yeah, it's really, you're starting a business, which is not, I was like, I'm going to be a writer. And then I just stepped right off the cliff of yeah. taxes and Why marketing. Why is that the voice for everyone who <laughs> says something big? <laughs> I'm going to go to the moon.
7: <laughs> to be a cosmonaut. Because
5: you were so innocent back then. It's like <laughs> yeah. you were five years old. Like, now I've aged so much.
7: Yeah. what's yeah. What's the best piece of writing you've ever read?
5: Oh, the first thing that popped into my mind was *Brokeback Mountain*. That was one oh, thing that wow, I read yeah. the short story again, and I remember like halfway through, I was like, God, "I really have to pee," but I'm like, "I can't stop. I have to read the whole thing in <laughs> yeah. one sitting." And then also, we were talking about Cormac McCarthy. Love him. He's greatest, yeah. I love Ellen Bass. Just there's so much amazing writing, yeah. which Who, I think is.
7: Who's the worst writer you've ever read?
5: Oh, <laughs> uh, myself, draft <laughs> one. Oh, that's a really
7: diplomatic answer.
5: <laughs> Wait, a very political. That's a very political answer. Something funny happens very, here. Very.
7: <laughs> I, 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 I always liked this sort of people are like this is the best, you know, like those lists come out and they're like the best medical schools of 2020 and then you're like, wait, what's the worst medical school? I want that school? manual. I want
8: that manual. Where should I
7: never uh, apply? Yeah. Alright, coronavirus question. We're here at the AWP. It's no secret it's been out, been heavily afflicted by uh, the fear of the coronavirus. Yeah. What's, what's your favorite virus? What's your favorite virus?
5: My favorite virus yeah. is the one that goes away quickly, um, right. which is why I'm also rocking the hand sanitizer today. But uh, my my final decider was uh, my best friend, who's an ER nurse, so I called her. I was like, what's the deal? Should I go or not? And she she was said like, you should go? She was like, go. And then she sent me this meme about how nurses are like... Around I it know. all the time, I mean, it's like, Yeah, they're exposed to it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's like... You can call it panic, but it's like, we'll see. Like, you know, yeah. if you're like... You know, they'll be like, well, I told you so at my funeral. But... Um, <laughs>
6: Well, by then, you won't care. Who knows?
5: I think, uh, yeah, we live wild lives anyway. So, But, you know, just being very careful. We're all just trying to be as responsible as possible and figure it out. Where do we go find your book? It is on Amazon. It's anywhere books are sold, um, right. unless it's like a small local bookstore, and then they'll be like, "We don't have that." Cool. From Sa- order it. Sasquatch don't Books.
7: Order it. It's from Sasquatch that Books. That is this true. It's a they beautiful cover it. too, man. Thank you. Yeah. It's I, turquoise. Aqua, we have what really what fun.
5: I got really lucky. Uh, Sasquatch was the publisher. They had a graphic designer. We have a lot of really fun illustrations, like a, a literary mixing board that okay. has you know all the knobs and dials, are like sarcasm and mood. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, and th- your
2: publisher's genius because they matched the cover of the book to the carpet. Yes, oh, I was, was going
6: to say the yes. exact same thing. <laughs> yes. You can lay <laughs> yeah. the book down on the carpet. <laughs> it's Instagram and, ready, you guys. It's a deal. It's, it's it a, camouflage, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a So on yeah. the green carpet with Daniel Pena yeah. holding a green book. Yeah. For,
7: and there you yeah. go. Yeah.
6: There We, we had go. to
5: pay a million dollars for that, and you know what? They threw down because it's Paulette Perhatch, so
7: they're like
5: maximum budget. That'll work for me.
7: The book is Welcome to the Writer's Life. Paulette per hatch. Thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thank Woo! You. Woo! 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 All right, yeah, we got it. Fun. Oh, that was great, man. Yay. Do yeah, the, elbow bump. the elbow, elbow, elbow yeah.
6: bump. Yeah.
2: Lily and I were talking earlier, yesterday, about a particular kind of apocalypse that we found. <laughs> exceedingly funny wherein i did it start because you had a james patterson dream
4: no or a uh, vision this man walked past the table and he just had the eyes and the hair and i had this moment you know growing up and having had like james patterson books around the house when it's like it's it's younger author photo younger than he is now and i was like oh my god it's 40-year-old James he's, Patterson. He's like trolling. Walking the age. past the table. I, like, my heart stopped. I was like, do I ask him to be on the show? And then he just walked away and was clearly
2: not James Patterson.
9: That's a bummer. You sure? He might have had some work done or something. I, what it's if,
2: possible. What if, like, all of those authors started aging in reverse?
9: Oh, I, if anyone knows the secret, it's James Patterson. <laughs> For sure. Oh,
2: totally. So we have to go find... It'd be like James, James, James Patterson, Patterson, Michael Crichton, John Grisham, and they were all like Stephen King, I think. Right? Yeah, and then and then they start going backwards. Oh
9: god, like the Benjamin Button. Benjamin
2: Do they just like button, go yeah, all the way earth. back to like
5: baby? I don't know. They don't go know.
9: back to the MFA. <laughs> <laughs> the virus by James Patterson. <laughs> Oh, you know, you know he's here writing that Word, right now. My, It'll my come book out book. on Monday. <laughs> Tuesday, Ryan, Tuesday. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. Got, I'm a professional. It's,
2: <laughs> got, to fact, it's got to be fact-checked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we have Courtney Mom in the yeah. studio.
6: So, Courtney, you know, the first time I saw the cover of your book was when Cameron Deason Hammond oh, yeah. posted She's... on her Facebook, Facebook wall, whatever you call it.
2: Or are the youth calling it. Yeah.
6: <laughs> she, the wall uh, of corporate death. Yes. So she posted Nailed about it. your book, and I got two copies, and immediately <laughs> my partner Kate grabs one, takes it home, does it ask me <laughs> to I, for like, anything. i
2: what are you going to do with two? This one's yeah, so clearly yeah. for me. So,
6: and then Lunar New Year, okay, my friend shows up huh. with a copy of your book really? to give me as a present. More food. I've sold three copies <laughs> of oh,
9: it. No, amazing. Just, I'm going to hit a list. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think Shakespeare Podcast sent Courtney straight to the New York Times bestselling list. That's right. <laughs> I'm at
9: the door.
6: James Patterson.
9: Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Cameron is a, a love, and she's been very supportive. So it's yeah. it's nice to know that friends are out there supporting friends. Yes,
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it works you. it works well because Fo's book came out this year. So it's exactly. actually the same it's it's helping in all kinds of ways. Bringing friends together and helping to navigate the post-publishing waters, the post-launch <laughs> waters. So yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure.
9: Um so this is my fourth book, first book of nonfiction. It's called Before and After the Book Deal, A Writer's Guide to Finishing, Publishing, Promoting, and Surviving Your First Book. It's recently out with Catapult, Independent Press. Hooray, hooray. Yay, Catapult. and And um, this is a really exhaustive guide to kind of I'd say the two years before and the two years after you finally get a book deal. So the the first half we deal with crafts, um, time management, Um, whether or not to MFA or low res, of course, agent querying, all the way up to when you finally do get a book deal. And then the second part is devoted sort of evenly between the logistics of what no one tells you is coming, except I'm going to tell you what's coming. (laughs) Um, And then sort of emotional and psychosomatic things like, Uh, jealousy and competition. I don't believe there's
2: anything emotional about selling a book. (laughs) That's right.
9: No, it's just a very straightforward process. And we have a giant section on money because nobody talks about it. (laughs) And uh, how you're never going to have health insurance and things like that. And um, Although I wrote the book, I interviewed about 175 publishing professionals. Not just writers, but agents and voiceover actors and foreign scouts and film agents and just... you know the entire spectrum of people that you might encounter along your journey and we hear from them and the goal is you know basically i wanted to recreate what to expect when you're expecting but for authors
2: that's a great
9: slogan
2: <laughs> i will say also because i get to say this it's fucking funny it
9: is fun i mean i'm it's funny i w- yeah it, even though, we, I mean, we talk about some pretty deep stuff, you know, depression and substance abuse and things like that, but but um, no, it's still, it's funny and most of the contributors are sharing pretty dark secrets. Yeah. There are quite a lot of people I thought, oh, when I showed them the proofs, they're going to pull their... Their their their, their contributions because people were so candid, yeah. but they did it. So you get it. You get to hear. You get to see the dirty laundry. We get
2: Roxanne Gay, <laughs> yeah. Lisa Ko, R O kwan Anthony doors Rebecca mm. McKay, it's, Nathan Hill. It's like the like uh-huh. Who's Who. Yeah, Mira Jacob, who was oh, yeah. on our show last season. Yeah, She's fantastic.
9: No, there's such a great there's a it's a great group of people and. I'm so happy to have them in the book, and now they're in my life too. So it's great.
2: It is. It's so. It's so cool because there are a, there are guides out there. But I, when I was reading, I was like, "Oh my god, she's covering the whole thing. She's covering soup to nuts of the whole process." And that's a huge undertaking. How long was this book in the making?
9: You know, I worked on it. It, it went pretty quickly. I, I would say a year, but that was with me.
2: You did all the research and contacting all these people? Uh,
9: yeah, no, I works I worked really really I mean, yeah. Yeah, because I The table of contents is what I started with, and it it didn't take me very long. Because, again, this is my fourth book, so I have a pretty solid handle on, like, my anxieties and uh, failures and things, my regrets, you know. And they're pretty close to the surface. I didn't have to, the research, I didn't have to go (laughs) do. And what I did was I sort of cross-checked my own anxieties and fears with... uh, a bunch of other people's and they checked out. I added, I added, you know, I'm not attached to an academic institution. So that that a lot of research was dedicated to the areas where I don't have any experience in academia was one of them. And then it was just a question of fleshing out. I would put placeholders under each sort of subsection of either the exact person I was hoping would contribute to that section or the kind of person, like I remember for the section on uh, two book deals I said, you know, I I put in the Word doc, like, open with an anecdote from someone who had a really positive first. Book deal or two book deal experience, and then close with someone who had a little harder time of it, and then catapult was a you know the perfect partner for this because they have a writing school and online writing okay. programs, so they were so helpful saying oh gosh you know who would be perfect for you to speak with because I didn't want to fill it obviously with just my friends you know so it's not some <laughs> clubby thing but no it went but that was me working every single day doing doing hours and hours of interviews every day I mean this this book I'm a trained copywriter and i that came in handy with the nonfiction voice i was able to do it in kind of a joyful and uh quick <laughs> manner <Yeah. laughs>
2: so i don't know a ton about your fiction writing process but i'm listening to you speak about like starting with the table of contents mm. and when i write i'm character driven and plot sort of eludes me mm. it's it's Every now and then, someone, some voice in my head's like, "Hey, you should have some fucking plot here. Like, let's get you know."
9: Usually, that's my agent's voice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so
2: there's something, but uh, there's something like very satisfying to me about what it must have felt like for you to have it all there in front of you. like oh, it was amazing. You can go here, 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 and we're going to... Again, in and my, my
9: inner copywriter was so happy. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't have to do the search for the character stakes, like what's at stake or people, is, are my characters changing? I mean, it was a delightful <laughs> experience. Plus, you know, writing fiction especially is so solitary and i live in a really rural rural area where do you live i live in northwestern connecticut in the woods (laughs) um i don't i don't really have a lot of writing friends around me but but with this book instead of being alone in my room i was on the phone every day with some of my heroes having these it was lovely having these incredibly candid discussions and then my my relationship with my publisher catapult for this book was quite intimate too because you know they were weighing in with their own anxieties and like, "Oh, you haven't talked about this, or you haven't talked about that," and people were quite candid sharing what you know they had struggled with, especially my my um I had the perfect editor because Julie Bunton was my editor, and not only you know she an editor um, and the head she was the head of the classes program, but she's a a really respected author. So having her way in as both a, a someone who had gone through these these vulnerable feelings, and also as an editor was you know it was great. Really, it was a, a great team. I'm happy I did it. It was a lot of work. I mean, I say I did it in a year, but that was just nonstop. Yeah, work.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it, it feels like it. It that's how it reads. It yeah. feels very dense. Not in, in a good way. Like, yeah. There's a lot of information, and it feels very well researched. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> number one, did you know it was going to be Catapult? And number two, did you start with a book proposal?
9: That's, it's funny because I'm starting to get asked that, and I never even thought that how odd it is that I didn't start with a book proposal.
2: Every, can I just say, yeah. every person who's ever written a nonfiction book proposal is so mad at you right now.
9: I'm, well, <laughs> don't be mad, because uh, let me tell you how it happened. I, it Originally, I wrote after the book deal. That's what we went out on an incredibly targeted submission with oh, how cool, maybe okay. two ed- two, three houses or something, and catapult responded instantly, and we were pretty sure like this is this is the perfect partner, but- So you
2: and your agent had the I- or you had the idea took it to your agent, and your agent's like, let's go out and just yeah. test the waters before what like what was written at that point
9: the entirety of after the books you okay
2: okay cool
9: which. Again, I really want to give a shout out to my contributors' generosity because all the people in the after part, they spoke to me when I had no book deal. You know, I was just telling them I'm doing this project and they, you know, spoke to me really happily. So after the book deal is what a couple of editors saw and Catapult was super interested, but they said to me, we need before. We need a basically another book. We need the in in two books in one. To which you replied, show me the money. <laughs> and they said w- we can't show you any more money. And so I said I'm, I'll do it. <laughs>
10: so, <laughs> heart bargains, so, would
9: but that be very heart a
6: good two-book deal or a bad two-book deal?
9: I would say yeah. that we can call this a community effort. It's a labor of love. Two-book deal, <laughs> uh, two-book in one. Yeah, two-book for the price of one deal. Um, so, so I mean, I sat around for a while. I didn't say yes right away because not only, of course, was it a lot more work, but I wasn't sure I agreed. I had, kind of, I had been excited, like to address the people that no one was speaking to candidly, you know, because the minute you get a book deal, this hashtag grateful mentality comes in where you're not supposed to express doubt or complain because it's such a privilege. It's such an immense privilege to be published. So I, I I, did try for a while to defend my decision to only have it speak to a specific... But, but my agent kind of walked me through, like, actually... Hang on. Just, we could go from hang on, having just a minute, Corey. we
2: could. Oh no, no. I'm sorry. That's what the agent. Was oh,
9: saying. <laughs> I'm like I'll stop talking right <laughs> no, no. now. Sorry. No, no. But she helped me understand. Like you, we could be going from a very niche pamphlet, you know, to an actual resource that could stay in bookstores. And I thought, oh heck, they're right. <laughs> what do you know? Yeah, and I, I was a little. I was just a little nervous about the before part because I I was such a I was. I don't know, I don't have an MFA, and I was nervous about speaking speaking about things that I didn't have personal experience at all, you know? So, again, thank goodness, my incredible contributors had tons, so...
2: Who are the you? You said just a moment ago. You said they're the people that nobody was talking to. Who, who were you talking about?
9: So, all authors who have had a book come out. Nobody, your editor. I have never spoken, to, and I, I have now spoken to so many people. No one has ever had a situation where you know the book deal um, happens, and around the time where the developmental or the the editor's letter comes in, no one from the publishing house sits the author down and says, "Hey." This is how many copies we hope you'll sell. This is what we think the point of your tour is, if you get a tour. This is what your first print run's going to be. This, is, no one says anything. They, they, if you give you, a, if they give you a timeline, it's about your copy edits, or you, you know, you might hear when you're going to see your cover. But no one says this is what we're hoping your cover will do. These are the things we're taking. This you is know, what
2: marketing is saying. If there is a marketing, budget,
9: the, all, all kind of, of thing, the marketing yeah. stuff. you you're just and it's a rare person who knows to even ask these things. I work in marketing on the side so I was a little bit more aware. But a lot of people, if they're lucky enough to get set out on tour, they're sent out there with with no no sort of education about what their goals should be while on tour. So you end up assuming it's to sell a lot of books. And rare is the author who has like super well attended events at bookstores, you know, especially it is incredibly hard to sell a $27 hardcover. And I don't, I really think that editors need to do a better job of telling people, you know, this is the number we're hoping that you'll hit. And um, this is how we think you can best do it. This is how your time should be spent. Those conversations do not take place. And people feel incredibly awkward asking other authors because it becomes a little bit of a minefield, even with your own author friends, because are you going to ask them what they got for an advance and then find out that they got tons more? Are you going to find out that they're getting $30,000 to tour with and you're getting 300? You know, these are they they can sort of blow up your own personal relationships and you get nervous and scared and and even with your agent it depends on the kind of agent but normally you do sort of catapult into a new relationship with your agent where the idea is that you have to be just well behaved and um, nobody can ruffle feathers too much and, you know, be, be a good little author. And, and that's true. I mean, it, it's true that sometimes, you know, you shouldn't be sending 13 emails a day, calm down. <laughs> yeah. There's a hierarchy of knowledge, but, but I, I wanted to inform people just base level what, Almost everyone can expect, regardless of whether you're with a micro press, a big press, um, and you know what what other people are what's happening with other people, so that you just you can be more informed and make decisions and understand whether your agent's doing a good job, whether your publicist is doing a good job, without feeling like you need to send a nasty email to someone. Right. I want people to not be sending nasty emails to their <laughs> publicists. You Less know,
2: nasty emails, please. <laughs> yeah.
9: Absolutely. yeah.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we, we talk a lot on the show about demystifying parts of that process and ask some of those questions of our authors. Like we had Jericho Brown on. And oh, we're wow. Talking to him about amazing. You know his his partnership with Copper Canyon and, yeah. and The Tradition, which is a poetry book that did wildly well. Yeah. And even then, it, like in my head, I was thinking, oh, well, it's Jericho Brown and and his books sold a lot. But they're still, even when the numbers are great, they're not talking about the numbers. Do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, no. It's
9: like, it's no, like, people, people, you know, Catapult told me, for example, like, your book's doing well, but I was too scared to ask what that means. What cause, the
2: fuck does that mean? Because I was
9: like, 17 copies well, or like, what?
2: <laughs> Three people in Houston bought the well, book. Well, I know on that for a
6: fact. Hey!
9: <laughs> I'm trending, trending. Trendy <laughs> all <in> went
6: <laughs> to this guy named Fulu, <laughs> and Kate Martin Williams took one. Yeah.
9: Catapult's
2: like, those people, they need yeah. to Yeah,
9: no, but it's such people. a, they, they, I, I, you know, when people started really talking to me about this book on record, a lot of people admitted that they had been harboring hopes of hitting the New York Times bestseller list without even knowing how many books that is. And, of course, it's relative, because it's it's relative to how many books are selling in a given week. But baseline, I mean, lowest amount is, what, 9,000 books in a week or something? And, and these are people, you know, again they haven't had the experience yet of you're trying to sell a $27 hardcover to, you know, five women in Minneapolis <laughs> at your book event. Um, and, and like, selling 9,000 copies in a week, selling 90,000 copies, this is, this, there's a reason it doesn't happen to a lot of people. It's incredibly hard, and you need the swell of influence and alignment of stars and money and resources that needs to, be happening for that to occur because i mean i have books who like i have a friend whose um book uh sarah jessica parker uh she was taken in a a paparazzi photograph where she's reading my friend's book Uh and um (laughs) i asked my my girlfriend like so like that's huge you know she's actually got great Hey, did your book sales go up that week? And she goes, they went down. <laughs> what happened? Well, I don't know what happened. Who yeah, knows that, what yeah, happened? Yeah, 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 I yeah, don't know.
10: Yeah, yeah. Maybe SJP
9: it? was out of favor that week. But but I thought, God, you really can't, like, no, you, you know, think, my my, you know, my last anything. book was chosen for the goop. Like you know, Gwyneth freaking Paltrow shows it, and uh, it was on the Instagram and everything. And I don't think it moved the needle at all. I was it. like, if Gwyneth can't move the needle, who's moving? Well, yeah, yeah. well was it Reese before Witherspoon. Or
2: after the vagina eggs. It was
9: after them. So yeah, I guess she her stock went down. I don't know. Put put my put my book in your vagina. <laughs> it's small format. <laughs> We're going to see a huge uptick, I have a yes, feeling. Yes, yes. Don't leave it in there too long, but you know. <laughs> oh my God. Think of your, yeah. It's, it's you know, reading from the inside out, people. Think about it. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> on trending. that note, this is going to be
2: trending on Twitter. Yeah,
9: yeah. good. Oh my gosh. It's the vagina dialogue. I'm going to get in trouble I, because it's really not something you should do. You'll get paper cuts. <laughs> Just put it in your purse instead.
2: That's awesome. <laughs> Not That's... your coin purse. No. Just oh wow. Purse. We can wow. do this all day.
6: Yeah. What time
9: is it in the morning? No, we it's give the an afternoon. What they want it's an afternoon. Day. That's right. That's yeah. right. We try. Gotta we try. try. It's a hard time to be a woman.
2: What's been, your, uh, what's been your favorite thing about AWP this
9: year? My roommate oh. My roommate, I'm just going to give her some love, um, is the it. author Amy Brill, and she's my AWP mom, and she got us upgraded from our, you know, broke lady sharing a bed hotel room to a two-bedroom suite with our own bathrooms and a stove and a kitchen, and when I arrived, she opened the door <laughs> she handed me a, a, my favorite beer, a big thing of hand sanitizer, and the Table was spread with um, salami and cheese and chocolate, and and the next day she did my laundry, and I love her.
2: (laughs) How come my love doesn't happen?
6: I I wash the dishes this morning
2: <laughs> you did yes, you washed yes. like five coffee cups and seven wine glasses Oh,
9: wine yeah. glasses are hard though that's that's yeah, yeah, yeah. the equivalent that of is like the
2: equivalent i take uh, it all back you're okay. amazing and
9: i don't wash wine glasses i make my husband do that. they're too hard i, I always <laughs> it's just hard. not I really love courtney <laughs>
2: I love your roommate too. That's so nice. Shout oh my God, out. she's
9: she's the best. Bless her. She and she stocked it with microwave popcorn too, which is really so you both know, There's pro some, move. there's
2: some parallelism because um, Foo bought two bags of popcorn and I bought two bags of popcorn. We are lousy in popcorn at our Airbnb. Yeah. We're so one
9: down. I think we have one one bag if left. If you
2: run out, come over to two three nine okay. Rittenmuth <laughs> Boulevard, and we will be happy. We will be happy to sh- like trade some chocolate. Okay. Chocolate for some popcorn. Um, it's been really great to have you
9: on the show. Thank you. This so has been much. very pleasant. I, I guess we probably have to do a disclaimer, like What's the opinion, the opinions of Courtney Mom, or not, uh, and the book and, vagina. and vaginas are not the opinion of <laughs> the this AWP podcast or, or, Catapult or Catapult Press. Oh thank you for having me. Uh, it's been an
2: absolute pleasure. I hope pleasure. you don't regret it. No, <laughs> we don't. Not a not a second. Please go out and buy the book because it's really, really great and Buy helpful. three copies.
9: That's there. You go. Put me on the list, please. In fact,
2: I think they're only selling them three at a time. Right.
9: That's yes, pretty yes. much true. Yeah,
2: it's a package deal. It's, a, it's yes.
9: paperback, so it's it's cheaper.
2: Yeah,
9: awesome. you're the
0: best.
10: Thank. you
2: We are here with Norma Cantu, Professor Emeritus from the University of Texas, San Antonio. It's a pleasure to get to meet you. I've had such a lovely time delving into your work. And I'm uh,
3: currently and professor at, yeah, the Noreen T. and Frank Murchison Professor of the Humanities at Trinity University here in San Antonio. Also oh, in wow. San Antonio. Yeah.
2: A woman who wears many hats. Absolutely. Um, so tell me, one, one of the things I found among many fascinating things um, was your your twice pilgrimage uh, through Spain. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. It's
3: the Camino de Santiago. Some people may remember the movie with Martin Sheen called The Way. It's the same pilgrimage from northern France in saint Jean, all the way across northern Spain to the pilgrimage site of Santiago de Compostela, the resting place for St. James the Apostle and I did that 9 years ago Um, did another one about 8 years ago no, maybe 6 years ago but it was shorter the first one was 500 miles of walking every day the second one was only 100 kilometers, so it was much shorter, only a week.
2: How far would you guys go in a day?
3: Um, average about 14, 15 miles a day, some days. The longest was 26 miles in one day, and it was too long. We swore never to do that again. Usually the shortest was seven, and so somewhere in between, and uh, we walked a lot through beautiful beautiful countryside it was winter so it was snowing and I have to tell you it started at AWP
2: did it? yeah it was a really
3: interesting uh, session it was in Chicago I believe that year Uh, what 12 years ago maybe 11 And Sandra Cisneros had a panel and she invited me to be part of it and it was spirituality in writing. Mm. And uh, everybody on the panel was talking about some aspect of spirituality in their work. And I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And so she and I talked about it. I said, you know, the one thing that I do religiously, if you will, is walk. And walking is a spiritual endeavor. It's like a meditation. So I talked about walking as meditation and about how you can focus and and the great ideas for writing that come from that. So when a year and a half later I'm walking the Camino, I'm going oh, my God, I'm doing what I said. <laughs> this is exactly what I said I was going to do with the writing and the work, walking. And so, yeah, there was a, an origin story there. Yeah,
2: that's great. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how you go from concept to, to creation,
3: yeah. Well, and you're a lot of times you're just led. This, for example, sticking with the story of the Camino, I had swore that I was not going to write because I was in it for other purposes, and it was not going to be about my head. It was going to be about my heart and my spirit. But third day into the walk, there's this mechanical pencil, bright blue, against a pristine white snowdrift. And I just was, like, drawn to it, like a magnet. And I sensed, like, if I pick it up, I have to write about this. Oh, wow. And I made the decision, and I picked it up, but I, I do this all the time. I kind of negotiate it with myself, and I said, <laughs> okay, I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to write, but I'm not going to go there, like, every night. I'm just going to keep a log. And that's what I did. Mm. However, a year later, I wrote a blog called El Camino, A Year Later, um, an immersion memoir. And what I did is I went back to that log that basically just had where we stayed, how much I paid for lunch, whatever and just recreated the experience. And so I did write about it. It's in a blog. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it'll be a book. It's That's not what I, I
2: wondered if it had made its way. Not yet. <laughs> because I found my way to the blog, but I didn't find my way to the book. Yeah, so it's I'm not there yet. <laughs> eager to see that in the world. Oh. It's such a great reminder, as I'm sitting here listening to you, what, what we do on the show oftentimes is talk so much about craft and the control that we have as writers to eke out meeting or you know painstakingly labor at this work and what i'm hearing you say today which is such a good reminder is that sometimes you have to be quiet and be led
3: by allow it to happen yeah and then of course comes the revision
2: (laughs) (laughs) where you do all that (laughs) we're never dismissed from the work from the labor right but but there has to be space and the joy yeah Mm -hmm. yeah thank you for that
4: that's great So you're a professor, Mm -hmm. and you've published a lot of really powerful academic work. And um, so one of my questions actually comes from a class I took. It was one of my favorite undergraduate classes. And it was on Chicana literature, and Chicana literature in the archive. And we actually just had a panel Mm -hmm. yesterday that our producer, Fu, moderated. It was talking about sensitivity reading and diversity in publishing. And Daniel Pena was on it, and he got to talking about this idea of the shadow canon and and those books that are so critical to a a community, a group of people, a culture, that don't necessarily hit the mainstream (laughs) and, and take off. And so I was wondering, in all of your teaching, and in time, as a professor, what like what books do you love teaching to your students that kind of come from that shadow canon that they didn't expect and they ha- they haven't interacted with before?
10: Mm-hmm.
4: What what should what should we be reading?
3: <laughs> everything, yes, but uh, especially yes. those writers that are not in the New York Times bestseller yes, list. Yes. Uh, also, I mean, I teach everything. I've taught children's literature, you know, YA literature, wow. creative writing, of course linguistics and within all of that in a kind of sometimes very blatant way I don't hide it I will of course include African-American Native American mm-hmm. Asian American and Chicano and Chicano writers I mean that to me is a given that's who we are as American literature it's all of those voices so I'm not going to not teach that right. however I also kind of for example I love Whitman and you know, we're celebrating 100th anniversary of his birth. Mm-hmm. So why not talk in a Chicano literature class about Whitman? Mm-hmm. He has a beautiful poem to a locomotive in winter. Well, there's a train connection, and so I can talk, and I, in fact, did write a poem about La Bestia, which is the train that brings the immigrants from Central America to the border. And so there's this connection, and he's writing about what he knows from his period. I'm writing about what I know on my period, but the connection is there. And so I interweave the two. The canon.
2: If or. No, uh uh.
3: And the canon has room for those voices. And I think it has to do with perspective as well. I don't know, I wasn't at the session, so I don't know what the discussion was about. But it's from from my perspective, we can't, there's no reason it should be either or. Mm -hmm. I think we can be inclusive and highlight the best and what hits us. For me, emotionally and spiritually, the words are what's important. And our words, my Spanish, is just as valid and just as valuable as Whitman's. So that's kind of how we, I open it up oh, hey. for students
2: speaking of Daniel Pena, yeah, he just walked he. by and oh. shouted. <laughs> I know. I that's why we both looked up. Oh,
3: I, saw, I heard a shout. I didn't know who it was. You
2: <laughs> conjured him out
3: ah, of the very Oh, yes, altar. we did. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Amazing. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. Sure. It's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, Are there
3: craft, craft? Before I go on, I'm glad that Chicana literature was one of your favorite oh, no. classes. That's oh, a, it was I love so to hear great. that.
4: Oh, it was so beautiful, <laughs> and we did a good job of looking at, you know, like you were saying, weaving the canon and the non-canon, and just mm-hmm. the idea of the archive and what makes something you know, yes. valuable so powerful and mm-hmm. we talked about a lot about and I think I think you do work on this too is folkloric traditions yes. and, and that sort of just you know uh,
3: I know I'm the current president of the American Folklore Society and right now we're deciding on our keynote speaker for next year and Ooh. so While I'm here, I'm also dealing with that. (laughs) (laughs) And the folklore, is. uh, I think it undergirds a lot of the literary work, too. Not Mm -hmm. just mine, but everybody's. Mm -hmm. It's folk life. Mm
2: -hmm. And within that, were you doing work on dance traditions as well? I have. I've done... Co edited?
3: Sure, I co edited an anthology with a couple of other folklorists, uh, Dancing Across Borders, Olga Najera Ramirez and uh, Brenda Romero. And my area of expertise within that world is the folk dance called Matachines. Mm-hmm. It's a religious folk dance that happens in New Mexico quite a bit, but also all over the Americas, all the way down to Chile. And my area is the border, the U.S.-Mexican border in Texas. So those are the, the ones that I've studied and worked with to produce academic writing.
2: Yeah. Oh, fantastic. We did have a question about academic publishing versus yes. versus your creative work. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed
3: that I use a different name for each.
2: You do. You didn't notice. Okay. I, I use not tell me about. Yeah, it.
3: the academic writing usually I publish with either Norma E Cantu or Norma Cantu. Okay. But my creative work I use Norma Elia Cantu with my middle mm-hmm. name. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. choice came about when I first started uh, publishing academic and creative because they're just, I'm the same person, but I really have, like you were saying earlier, I wear different hats. And so I have these two different identities, if you will. And some people will know me as a folklorist. Other people know me as a literary critic. Other people know me as a creative writer or a poet. And, but I'm the same person. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of differentiate that uh, through the name, through Norma Elia, which is my full birth given name, or Norma Cantu, which is the shortcut everybody goes to. <laughs>
2: What is, just for our listeners, can you maybe highlight some of the differences between your academic publishing journey when you're trying to place an article versus, um, you know, finding the right home for your poetry collection?
3: Right. I guess the similar terrain is that I publish with university presses, almost exclusively. For both? For both, except a couple of things that I've done with... Uh, Macmillan or you know things like that which are not well no they're part of it I have a series (laughs) at Palgrave so Uh that's not academic uh, publishing in terms of University Press But the university presses that have, for example, a book series that I edit at Texas A&M Press allows for me to also include others, to bring in others. And the ones that we have published with University of Illinois, Dancing Across Borders, uh, Chicana Traditions, Continuity and Change, those books are more anthologies of academic folklore work. And Illinois is known for that. So I would go to Illinois for that work. Whereas the poetry collection, I really debated. And I did offer it to a couple of independent small presses. Uh, They weren't ready for because those are so overworked and they had so many titles already. And I really wanted it out sooner rather than later, Mm -hmm. although it still took two years. But it would have been longer with the other press. So I went ahead and, and signed a contract with Arizona. They have a really good reputation of using, of doing Chicana and Chicano poetry. So that's why I went with them. Uh, you consider different areas. Uh, Trinity University Press, for example, is going to be doing an anthology on, on Latina poets that I'm putting it's together. They do. Mm-hmm. And so they came to me and said, Do you have anything? And I said, yes. <laughs> I had just hosted a gathering of 12 Latinx poets from across the Americas. And it was like, there it is. We're going to expand right. it. And now we have over 60 poets in the anthology. So, yeah, it, it just depends, I guess, the venue, whether it's academic or Creative. I hate to do that because academic a, is creative as well. Creative,
2: absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's a false dichotomy, mm-hmm. isn't it? False binary. Um, because they're both creative work. Yeah. Um what about as a person of color um who who may not have the connections um or who who doesn't have the the backlist that you do? Um, if they're out there trying to find a place um, for their poetry, do you have recommendations?
3: Sure. And part of it is um, I, I gave up a long time ago on like competing, if you will, with a major publishers you know the top five or whatever i don't even apply i don't send i don't pay anyone to reading fees or any of that i mean but that's my personal choice Mm -hmm. i was very poor and i didn't want to pay anyone to read that and that world has changed it used to not be like that Mm -hmm. journals did not ask for a reading fee even the three dollars that wasn't there Mm -hmm. now that's the nature of the beast if you want to get published you pay a reading fee to submit your work I still am very hesitant I tell my students you have to be on the lookout and watch out for scammers because sometimes I'll just charge you and not publish you or they don't it's not even a legit venue right. so you have to be very vigilant that it's not kind of appealing to your ego and i mean i get this stuff all the time that people will say oh you want to be in who's who you know give us six hundred eighty nine dollars and you can be in who's who Well, what a uh, Kirkus Review is sending me all this stuff about writing reviews for my books and I'm going I'm not going to pay you for that so I have a very different ethics if you will, I will not engage with that, I also don't have an agent mm-hmm. now I don't know that that's going to be forever but at this point I've never used an agent so that limits the places where you can place work And um, but I'm okay with that other people I think should have an agent that's going to be pushing their work in venues where they think it's important mm-hmm. so another kind of a bit of advice is to follow your heart. If you really feel that something's not right, pull the book. Don't go through with it. And I've it's Have you a, had to do that? Yes. And it's a hard decision. It's not easy.
2: What were the flags?
3: Um it just gut feeling actually. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. doesn't feel right. There's something off and yeah. uh Not that it was, uh, I mean, the press I'm thinking of, and I'm not going to name it, but it it was decent. It was doing well and all that, but it just didn't feel right. And so I just pulled it. And I don't have any idea what would have happened had it gone forward. It was early enough so I could do it. So it was fine. Another uh, cases, the press itself. I mean, university presses as well. I remember when University of Minnesota was going through trouble, they cut a lot of their authors, and they just said, "We're not publishing your books," even though they had contracts. Mm. So you, you know, it's not always a sure thing. You it's have to. Hold out there. Yeah, you have to kind of just watch it and hope that it will all work out in the end. You know that joke from the movie. If it hasn't worked out yet, it's not the end yet. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. We talked to a, another author um, yesterday about this, and, and he was saying uh, it's important to know that your, the dignity of your work is respected by your press. And
3: Absolutely. And one of the signs for me is the Spanish. If they want me to translate everything in Spanish to English, that's a red flag. Uh, if they don't understand, like one copy editor said, there are no breakfast tacos. And I'm going, What? <laughs> You're not from Texas. Oh, no. what? what? Well, you know, some young person in New York is reading it and they have never been to South Texas or had a breakfast taco and they don't know. And these there are no <laughs> breakfast tacos—that's like saying there's no sky. Uh-huh. You know? For Texas, there's no water. That's and right. You know, <laughs> that's crazy. Well, some people don't know there are breakfast tacos. I know. Yeah. Fathom that. Yeah. No, they're they're yeah. not human. That's right. Yeah, that actually happened to a friend of mine. It didn't happen to me particularly. <laughs> and when she told me that, I had the same reaction. I said, "What?" what?
4: <laughs> Well, we were also drawn within your work to So you, you edited a collection of testimonials from Chicana, like mathematicians, right. engineers. Mm-hmm. Can, can you kind of tell us like these people who maybe don't, and maybe sure, they do no. traditionally write, but who don't have a lot of <laughs> like, you know, the intense writing experience that you've had, both like the academic creativity and, and your poetry and your fiction. Well, what was that like to work with them? And, and can you also tell us a little bit about like, what it, what is the testimonial for, sure. for our listeners? Well,
3: First of all, a testimonio is like a first-person narrative that testifies. Mm -hmm. Uh, In traditional Latin American literary tradition, it would be some struggle, so that the person Mm -hmm. is telling about some major struggle, political or otherwise. For example, Rigoberta Menchú, the book, Rigoberta Menchú, talks about her um, struggles in Guatemala, political struggle as an indigenous woman. Mm Uh, we there's another book that you may not be aware of called Latin, It's um, Telling to Live, Latina Feminist Testimonios. And that was created by 18 Latinas in the United States. And we did work over seven years to create that book. And one of our commitments was that we would go on from there and have other testimonials, mm-hmm. and mine was this one. My partner's a chemist, and so she was the one who called all her friends together. And my is a mathematician, and so we, uh, the hardest thing I have ever done is to get these women to write.
10: <laughs>
3: well, maybe, yeah, it is the, the, the hardest. The second hardest is to get an artist to write. <laughs> They that's are. So I'm an artist. I don't write, or I'm a scientist. I don't write. Unless you
4: find that blue mechanical pencil.
3: Exactly. In the you just have to, everyone has their metaphorical blue mechanical pencil. In I love trip. that. Yes. yes. Oh, that's such a good story. And so I had to uh, corral all their creative energies into writing this testimonial wow. with key questions. And if you looked mm-hmm. at the book, they all of them answer the same question, but of course differently. And then I put them all together into the anthology. It's been a really interesting book because it was done a long time ago, and it's still out there. The Mm -hmm. Chicano Studies Library, the Chicano Studies Research Center at UCLA published it. Before that, it was published by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Mm -hmm. We got a small grant to get these women together at a conference, brought in some young STEM Majors, oh, nice. uh, it was fabulous. And then wow. the women told their stories, and we audio them. And then they wrote, and we put both together. Followed up with another retreat for them to finish them up, and then I put them into the book with heavy editing and and assistance. You know, oh, wow. they they were really amazing, and they are amazing scientists doing excellent work.
4: How did you? Wow, wow! How did you <laughs> go about teaching that? Like, what what, what uh, advice did you give them,
2: or? Well. Because that first draft is... Hard. It is
3: hard. And it's
2: hard enough for people who write all the time, yes. yeah. Yeah. let alone for yeah. people who don't. Well, yeah. the
3: prompts have a lot to do with it. It's the same mm-hmm. as in a writing class, right, you know, right. the prompt, did you have any angels that helped you overcome obstacles? So instead of asking mm-hmm. what were the obstacles that you faced, mm-hmm. I had them write about how they overcame those obstacles and who helped them. Mm-hmm. And immediately they would tell me stories about a professor who gave her name to a scholarship and she didn't even know she was going to get it or you know just incidents that would come up they would tell the stories and so that at the core of it is the story mm-hmm. who was uh, an early influence is often people often ask that i didn't i would say well tell me how you got interested in it what did you find was really attractive and was there anyone there telling you not to do it <laughs> So and, of course, they would. That's where the magic is, yeah. <laughs> and then they would switch that, and the story would come out. So it's a really beautiful book. I'm very proud of it. Yeah.
2: We, we will link to all of this so that our listeners will oh, be able wonderful. to um, find, find this work. Um, we've so enjoyed getting to know your work, and I look forward to, to reading yeah. more. And I want to say it's an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for all of your contributions to Literary Landscape.
3: Thank you for doing this and putting the word out. Yeah. yeah. Of the what is it? The Shadow Cannon. The
2: shadow mm-hmm. Cannon. I
3: love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're there.
2: Thank yes. you so much Norma. Thank best you. Best to you.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Okay.
2: Michael, just tell us like uh, tell us who you are and and what you do.
0: Wow, that's a great question that was not on the list that you sent me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's such bullshit. I'm so sorry. No, let's Okay, well, let's take it back. Uh, you, Michael Julius, I have on good authority, are a member of the Writer to Writer program here at AWP. And we actually have yet to talk about it. And, and I know there are some uh, listeners who are really interested in finding out what it's all about.
0: That's right. I am a Spring 2020 mentee in the Writers Who Writer program, sponsored by AWP. Uh,
2: and what is, what is it? What do well, they do?
0: Okay, so <laughs> what we do it's a it's a mentorship program, Writer to Writer. So we uh, pair uh, published and accomplished writers um, with new and emerging writers to provide some guidance and the support uh, through their process, through their journey. So uh, it's a great program. Um, I I was put onto this program. Uh, Feel very fortunate about it um, paired with a great mentor rita woods who uh, is a debut novelist has a book out called remembrance that just came out i think in january and uh you know personally what we do is that we have conversations over phone email via text uh, just talking about her journey um, her process from query letter to publication and uh that's just helpful for me as i kind of think through the pathway that i want to take in my own writing career
2: yeah right on So did the program, that sounds like a frickin' sci-fi... I don't know, Overlord. Did the program match you? Yes, we have a match day. <laughs> they they, they do you match. Find Rita? How did that work out?
0: Well, I, so the program uh, <laughs> they, they pair us together. <laughs> um, what they do is that uh, mentees and mentors both uh, submit applications. We peel answer.
2: back your skulls and like mind meld. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry.
0: They actually do in a way, right? So uh, in the application process, they ask us a bunch of uh, essay questions. Um, as mentees, we also submit samples of our work. Just kind of looking at that, getting a sense of our voice, our aesthetic and what we're interested in uh, accomplishing. They also read the uh, essays and the questionnaire filled out by the mentors and they try to match people as best as possible. And I was fortunate. I have an amazing match with my mentor and, you know, conversations that I've had with other mentees. Seems like it's been working pretty well. They're very uh, happy with their pairings. So
2: that's super cool. How did you know it was even a thing that you were going to apply for?
0: So that is an excellent question. I...
2: Michael Julius makes <laughs> me feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice. I, I, you,
0: you're you know, doing,
2: it's like a little. You're doing a great job, Kate. And you know what, Michael Julius, you're doing a great job.
0: <laughs> uh, thank, thank you. Thank you. So I'm new to writing. This is a this is a new uh, path, a new journey for me. I'm, I'm a non-traditional kind of a student writer. Uh, I didn't study writing, so. I've always had a passion for for writing, for reading. And that was something that was noticed by my wife, actually. And, uh, you know, I never felt confident or comfortable enough pursuing my writing. And my wife, for my birthday a couple years ago, she was like, look, you know, there's this conference, the AWP conference for your birthday present. Here's a ticket to go to the conference. Holy there's crap, a program.
2: that's like the coolest <laughs> partner gift I've heard right? in yeah. There's yeah. a long time. There's
0: a program at that conference called Writer to Writer. Try to get in it. And really just dig into your writing, like take some time and really pursue this to see if it's something that you can do because you never want to live with regrets. And that's the greatest gift she's ever given me. Well, no, I take that back. Don't don't get me cut out here. Um, (laughs) She's given me a lot. But no, I, I just felt very fortunate. And, you know, coming to AWP, I just discovered so many things about writing through the program as well. I discovered a lot of different workshops that really helped me develop my craft. I feel like I'm just on a great trajectory and I'm really comfortable with where my writing is right now.
2: What was your non-traditional path?
0: What were you doing before? A lot of different things, a lot of different lot things. Of things. So I was uh, in the academy for a little bit. Some would say a perpetual student but also uh, working in, uh, in academia as well in the corporate professional realm. I worked in corporate America for a while, for a while as well worked in the political realm for a while I did a little bit of everything. Hey, so hey, hey. <laughs> you have to you have to so um, So yeah so I, you know I enjoyed that and now I'm enjoying this.
2: So, can you talk a teeny bit? Are you one of those people who can talk about your writing as you're working on the project, or do you like to keep it under lock and key until it's ready to be out in the world?
0: I, I don't know. We're gonna find out right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you this know, is you, fun. let's do it. Yeah. I think of my writing in the abstract when I have conversations with folk because it is a process. You know, I'm, I'm discovering as well, you know, my, my writing style, my voice, you know, the, even the, the subject matter that I feel comfortable and confident in, uh, in exploring in my writing. So uh, currently I'm working on a collection of short stories, um, just looking at different things. A lot of the topics that I explore are kind of... Uh, Coming of age stories, particularly minority and immigrant stories, looking at questions of identity. What does it mean to be um, young, gifted, and uh, black in a in a new environment that uh, that doesn't necessarily see you as any of those things? Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, I, I kind of play with that as a lot. Um, I just look at um, familial relationships, parental dynamics, like mother-son relationships reflecting on my own life and just kind of exploring some of the questions that I had some of the experiences that I have and I think that it's helpful it's cathartic therapeutic but it's also I think it's an opportunity to put something on paper that can maybe help someone that's coming up in a similar situation to me uh, explore and maybe find their own kind of pathway or identity and so right on yeah
10: definitely
4: we were so you're uh, learning a lot about the writing world as you go. We were talking earlier about your Instagram and how you have to. <laughs> yes, I am asking this question. <laughs> I, how, how you maintain your Instagram and to to the viewer, to us, it's very curated and very aesthetic. So what's going on there?
0: Well, thank you for the the compliment. Um, it's interesting. My Instagram is very low maintenance because I don't really know how to use Instagram. I, I, I don't <laughs> Shh, understand don't it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no um,
2: one needs to know. <laughs> yeah you know I
0: see I see people do so many amazing things on Instagram. You know, you'll look at some of these sites where it's like curated by like color or, or tone or items. I'm like, man, that's work. So um I was like, yeah, I can't do anything like that. But what I did do is like, you know, someone said like find something that you're interested in and make that your your you know your kind of theme for your for your thing. Initially one of the things that I was really interested in were um, historically black colleges and universities so some of the early things that I did on my Instagram page is that I um, had pictures of HBCUs around the country because I think that there's such an important aspect of American society. They're so important. I I live in Atlanta. We have a a few different uh, historically black colleges and universities, and I just really appreciate the work that they do. So I highlighted a lot of uh, HBCUs, and then I moved into books that I like. You know, I'm always looking at my bookshelf, and I was like, you know what? Why don't I put this on Instagram? So I just took a bunch of books off of my bookshelf, and I just started taking photos of them. And uh, that's kind of where it is right now. It's pictures of books off my bookshelf. (laughs)
4: Oh, it's great. It, y'all should check it out. What is, your, what is your Instagram page?
0: Oh, my page. I uh, guess it's the handle. What the is it? Handle. The at Come sign. Come
2: Lily. You're the youth. Uh, you're the youth. <laughs> it's a handle. I All right. Tried. It's not a page.
0: It's uh, the I at I tried.
2: S- <laughs> I'm <I've> being chastised. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry.
0: The, uh, the at sign at M-J-Y-I-D-A-N-I yeah that's it right <laughs> just, i was like should i say dot com or dot org or something <laughs> yeah, no, that's just
2: <laughs> please do that it's okay Can right? now, I know. Too. he's like now yeah. he's like i don't want to get made fun of i don't want to get made fun of there you
10: go yeah <laughs> yeah just uh
2: <laughs> my mind died okay but no seriously check check out the it's Instagram. because we all have convention center sushi there you go yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, um. i think we're gonna be okay though what did you have for lunch
0: so, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did not have lunch because oh. it's currently Lent, and I'm fasting for Lent. So, oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah. It, Do you know what I gave up for lunch. What did you give up?
2: Dairy and eggs.
0: Okay, that's good. Do you
2: want to know good. how long it's lasted at this AWP? How long? If you tell my kids we're through, we can't talk anymore. Okay. It went well the first first day. And I even went to Bucky's. (laughs) I found some vegan shit at Bucky's. (laughs) Bucky's, And that's surprising
6: because everything in Bucky's is infused with bacon. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Have
0: you
2: been to Bucky's? I have not.
6: He's from Atlanta.
2: Do you know what Bucky's is? I don't. Okay. Can I tell you? Uh,
0: Educate me. What is Bucky's? It
2: is a gas station chain.
0: Okay. Like Loves?
2: Yes. Ah, I see. Yeah. Very similar but there's a there's something very different about Bucky's. It's a culture. Number one, it has a beaver as a logo. Okay, all of its themed billboards clue you to the cleanliness of the bathroom and they sell beaver nuts. We're going to leave that there, mm-hmm. but it's an expansive. Uh, like, it's, it's very genius. You can buy a it's life like- jacket. You At could, this gas station
4: for road trips buy in the car, jacket. you I could think. buy a
2: crawfish boiler. You could buy you inspirational could crafts. <laughs> At <and> Bucky's, <laughs> At Bucky Beaver nuts. But but Oreos are vegan, and they sell those there. And so I had Oreos some, are vegan. Yeah, because there's nothing actually food related in an Oreo.
0: Did know that? <laughs> it's
2: not food. It's Learning just something. chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's
2: just chemicals. made by the program
0: no it's a setup because i think (laughs) i I always think of that 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 white inner cream filling has to have some type of cream or something no it's no no, it's It's hydrogenated hydrogenated something yeah
10: hydrogenated
6: beaver nuts
2: how did you get here hydrogenated beaver nuts and so Uh, yeah
6: lent then
2: then uh then things were going well at dinner the first night where'd we go 54th street yeah. yeah, I had a veggie burger with no cheese okay. on it. And then we went to Mexican with Daniel Peña last night and it was all over. It was yeah. just cheese. Give me all the cheese. Okay. And some more cheese. Yeah. But but other than that, I'm doing good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's good.
2: And now you're you're fasting and all I'm doing is talking about food because I'm yeah. an asshole. <laughs> I'm really sorry. No, you know.
0: But it it is funny because uh before I, before I came here, there was a whole debate, conversation about um, whether or not uh, Burger King's new um, Impossible Whopper is uh, is acceptable for Lent. Like, people are like, I, 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 I give up meat for Lent, but I'm going to go get this Impossible Whopper. I'm like, really, dude? Come oh, you
10: on. You're on the exact
4: same, like, surface with all this, you know? Oh, it's
0: like oh, glamping. So or, yeah, <laughs>
2: totally.
0: Like, if you're going to do it, do it. You know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Michael Julius funny. is a purist. He's like, No, you can't have that. No. You cannot have that. We are gonna finish out our interview. Thank you awesome. for so much for giving of your time so generously. But there's one more thing you have to do. Oh no. After you publish five Pulitzer Prize winning he's gonna be the only author Just of all five? time <laughs> to publish five books that are in the Pulitzer. Then you will put out a best selling memoir and it will be the title of your last text. Are you willing to play the game?
0: The title of my last text? No, no, text? I see the okay.
2: title of that memoir will be the last text you sent. For instance. Okay.
0: Oh, I got you. I like that. Okay, I'll play yeah. this game. Yeah,
10: uh,
2: yeah. Pull up even,
6: my phone? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Pull up your phone. Give us the title of your... Oh, give
0: please us your last don't text. be something suspect. Please don't be, be the something title. suspect.
2: Mine is... Can I share mine, too? Because I want to finish the yeah. mic. Okay. Mine yourself. is... Go. Girl, you don't even know I will get down on box sushi a memoir
0: (laughs) I like that it's a little spicy let's see pulling up my text last words on it my last text Okay. okay sounds good sorry I'm not there my memoir oh. <laughs> oh. Oh.
10: Very
6: good. Very
2: good. when that book is published and when all the others are published we'll be happy to have you on to talk some more about it you're a gem thank you so awesome. much for being on the this show is thank you Marco for having me <laughs> Christopher Ooh. Miguel Flaccus, we have you on the show not to talk about the carpet, unless you want to. Oh, no,
1: that's all right. Thank you, you so much.
2: You <laughs> about the carpet, but I'd rather talk about the amazing work that you do in this literary world. What do you do here?
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> no. I mean, it's a, it's a strange AWP for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. but even before... Um, you know, the coronavirus scare and everything. It was was kind of strange from the get-go because I'm partially here with my MFA, so I have certain, you know, like getting a per diem through the University of Houston program and my whole cohort's here. I'm also here with my magazine, Defunct Magazine, which I co-edit with some friends. And at the same time, kind of just shopping around and looking at different publishers and magazines so i'm kind of like trying to it's all about time management and in a way it was a lucky break because now i feel that there's a little more time to do that i'm not just making a beeline to all these panels because a lot of them have been canceled (laughs) but it worked out i'm actually really okay with this speed i think Mm -hmm. i've had a lot more intimate conversations with so many interesting people
2: it has given us a chance to be socially awkward in real life instead of just socially awkward on a panel <laughs> or socially awkward on Twitter. So I really appreciate that.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: I, too, am liking the ability to to sit and chat a little bit longer and yeah. get to know people. We've met some really cool folks. Yes, we have. Tell us about Defunct Magazine, please.
1: Sure. Well, so Defunct Magazine, we're a quarterly online magazine with one print anthology annually that's kind of like a best of. Um, all of us had worked on literary journals before the most of our editors, uh, had worked at glass mountain magazine as undergrads at the university of Houston. I'd worked with, um, the Bayou review and, uh, at the university of Houston downtown with Daniel Peno was our faculty advisor. And so we all kind of knew the ropes of how to do it. And there was a certain amount of frustration with not having the total freedom to make those kind of calls on our own. So sort of born out of frustration. Um, for me personally, it was kind of like a little nod to the zine culture and the DIY, like punk ethos, but yeah, using yeah. online to reach a wider readership and publish things that maybe, because I think all of us felt when we worked at University Magazine, something would come across our desk that we really wanted to publish, mm-hmm. but it was maybe pushing a certain boundary or it ground the wrong gears. And, uh, you know, we were digging through these slush piles and really putting a lot of our time into it. And at the end of the day, you know, finding that we couldn't publish this or we couldn't publish that or someone already had an idea for the magazine ahead of time. I didn't really feel that at the Bayou Review. We were so lucky with Daniel gave us carte blanche. But I feel like my co-editors really felt like they wanted the opportunity to pick writers that, you know, writers of color, marginalized writers, experimental fiction, flash, things that were sort of being left out. So that's our opportunity to do that.
2: What compelled you? Because you you finish school and then you have time to do to like finally do your own work, um, to work just on your own work, and it's it seems like a, a pretty philanthropic. That's not the word I was looking for. What's the word? Altruistic, idealistic, even choice. To go out and and start your own magazine, which is a fuck ton of work. It,
1: it is. I'll be totally honest. I don't know if I knew how much work it would be going into it. But... I think if
2: we did, we wouldn't. Right. <laughs> do anything. Do anything like, oh in this God. world. But I, my, my point was, I admire that decision so much, and I love to see defunct doing well out there. Thank and just you. wanted to hear more about how, like, why in the world you would do it.
1: You know, in a weird way, it's actually been wonderful for my writing because it's imposed this sense of order and time management has become, you know, of paramount importance. And whereas before I would maybe block off a day or just write when I felt like it and I'd get a lot of writing done. But now that there's a system and I I know that my writing time is limited, I feel like I take it much more seriously. And, um, you know, for me, my, my writing and the MFA program, it comes first. It has to come first but the magazines imposed a sense of order. So I have my set writing days and my set writing hours, and I've actually ended up more productive as a result of that. So I thought I would be, you know, writing less, managing all this, but the the opposite is true.
2: Right, yeah. What are some things that you keep in mind when you're editing other people's work?
1: You know, it it is tricky because, I I guess I I always think of it as a writer. I come at it from that perspective. So I have a lot of empathy. I understand that if we're gonna use something that we wanna change a lot, we probably will consider that before even going. I mean, we will maybe reach out to the author. If they're not okay with it, then that's like the end of the discussion. We don't really feel comfortable changing the work. So hopefully if it's grammatical stuff or something really simple, no problem. But if we're, if we're cutting, that's really uncomfortable. And I, I know that would make me uncomfortable. When we worked on the Bayou Review, we did the prison issue and there was a, a gentleman who's on Which death is a great row. great issue. Oh, i Thank, it. thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. There was, there's a piece that we really wanted to use. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, like, 40 pages long, and there was about five that, I mean, I already, I knew exactly which five I wanted to use. They would have been perfect. It was such a hard process because we, were, we weren't able to communicate directly. I could only write him a letter and say, hey, this is what we'd like to do with your permission. And he's literally on death row, so I thought he would be right back, like, yes, please do it. But he was actually very against anything being cut. He wanted it to be all 40 pages or nothing, and it was a tough decision, but we ended up not using yeah. it.
2: yeah that's it that I want to talk a little bit more about that just kind of editor to editor and hoping that it's important or interesting to other people listening but um we get work sometimes that comes across the desk and I'm thinking I really love like my heart loves this book but I can see some ways that I would really like to shift and change and and I know that is an experience for lots of authors how do you decide if you're going to you know, if it's enough of a love, if there's enough zing there to go back to that author. And then what happens if that author says to you, like, well, you know, it's this is how it is.
1: It's it's tough. I think I would always err on the side mm-hmm. of uh, of the writer um, just because I know how much of yourself you put into the work. And, and when you're when it. When it comes down to, I would like this for my own either reasons of posterity or for the magazine, I think it'd be good for the magazine, and I'm weighing that against someone else's uh, feelings, really. I I have to side with their feelings, even though it it can be frustrating. Like, in that case, I was honestly thinking, like, come on, man. Like, what do you you got to lose here? Just let us make the cuts, you know, and tell your story, and wouldn't you want that? But that's not the way he saw it, and he wasn't willing to make the cuts, so we just... We, you know, parted ways on that. Um, and, and I think
2: it's probably different when you're working with a review or a magazine yes. than if you're publishing somebody's book length. Right. Yeah, work of fiction or collection.
1: Online, we have a little more leeway, you know, yeah. and that's that's another yeah. reason why we, we, we only stick to the one print issue a year. Online, I, I feel okay with publishing something really long or something really different and... And, and the fact is, I think that we get a higher readership that way. I mean, mm-hmm. these days you can just shoot someone a story that you like and people share so quickly in a line. And, but I, I, at the same time, think that the object, having a book in front of you that you can feel and smell and read is kind of irreplaceable.
4: Absolutely. Well, and you guys have also done some really cool readings and events and I think even Thank music, you. if I'm correct. Yeah, that's sort of so, like our
1: reward. Even though we're all yeah. writers and readers, we know that it's tough to sit through an hour and a half, two hours of just you know, a a human voice, even if it's really Uh compelling work. Uh We we live in a really kind of ADHD age, you know. We're so overstimulated and we're used to getting these little parcels of media all the time mm-hmm. so that's kind of our minds working against us so if we break it up with music I feel like the audience pays more attention to the readers, they, they retain more and then they kind of like cool. Oh, we also give a lot of little intermissions because we want the readers to interact with the people there and give them and like more crepes. chance to talk and crates, yes, we're so lucky <laughs> Sean's around here actually from Melange Crippery. He
2: what, yeah? See, I've, seen, I've <laughs> seen him. I wish we could eat crepes online. Like, I, I wish we could eat crepes across the podcast. <laughs> wait. They're
10: mind blowing.
2: This is hybridity at its highest point. I'm going to do it here first. Mm-hmm. And my name's Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. <gasps> my name's Elizabeth Holmes. I can make you eat crepes. This is so fucked up. What's wrong with <laughs> you? What is
10: happening? I can make you eat crepes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
6: On the wow. This is uh,
4: Where were we just a second this, ago? We were we were talking about readings. We were
6: talking about readings.
2: And then we were oh, talking about crepes and at the reading. Yeah. Yeah. And Sean is floating around, Sean's floating around and he's doing Does he work with
1: So you guys? he he was an undergrad at, at UH. He's a writer. We met at Boldface. He brought like his kind of like Pared down crepe stand, yeah. so I met him there making crepes. We've
2: had delicious black bean and feta uh, cilantro mm-hmm. crepes from so made good. by the hands of prepared by the hands of Sean. They're so delicious.
1: <laughs> they're, I didn't actually amazing. know he was a writer too. That's he so is. Cool. He is, and and really out just out of that. Will the support he lent us his place, and it's kind of been an open door policy. We've done all our launches there so far, and I think we're probably going to continue to do so.
2: Yeah, if it ain't broke.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: So, yeah.
4: Y'all are doing a lot of community building through that, too.
1: I feel like, you know, Houston has all these little communities, literary Mm -hmm. communities, and they're they weren't in communication with with each other. Even within academia, like uh, on UH Mm -hmm. campus, there's the Spanish PhD in creative writing and like all these amazing writers, but they were kind of like, we're only, there's like building away from each other and we weren't overlapping or communicating. They
2: might as well be silos.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I mean, I don't want to take, I don't think we're taking total credit for it, but I feel like those lines have been blurred more and I have classes where they're taking classes as an elective from our program and we're taking some of their classes as electives and there's a little bit more of a mix. We all know each other. They've read at our readings and we've been invited to read at theirs. And that's, I mean, that to me really represents Houston much better. I mean, Spanish is the second most spoken language in Houston. It's such a diverse part of town that it it doesn't seem right to be a Houston-based magazine and not have that community represented.
4: Definitely
10: makes sense to me.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's kind of like the weirdo art kids who are not really in academia and they're kind of like the punky group Mm -hmm. but they do their own readings and so they've kind of come into the fold. cool, yeah. Uh, Ankle Brighter's Press that Kalen Rowe works. uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, he does it out of his house. He does bookbinding out of his house and is the most DIY thing ever he's putting out our print issue so now kind of like these groups are starting nice. to connect to each other
2: that's exciting I yeah. heard that and they're cool. great
1: I mean they're like wonderful quality you'd never know that it was just like one guy and the sweat mm-hmm. of his brow with yeah. a bunch of different scanners and printers and...
2: speaking of the sweat of the brow we have a poem that was sweated over <laughs> uh, in honor or in homage to an ode to what is the name of that damn poem over there
6: it's called Christopher's Beard. I, I had a commission, I so. and Tamara...
1: Yeah, we're doing yeah. busking over at our, our table. Yeah, Tamara wrote Poetry that.
2: busking on typewriters. On a
1: purple I'm a typewriter.
6: On a, a purple typewriter. So...
2: Without you, further ado, Footloo.
6: This is Christopher's Beard. The beard of a writer... He says are full of thoughts. Take a comb and dig. Past scraps of character names. Move through the great here patch of plot lines. Don't let the pesky critics suck the blood of storyline. Red patches are here to remind that his words come from a space and world always in between mexico and houston braided chicano americano christopher's beard is suspended in time catching the
1: crumbs of a writer's mind oh wow i swear tomorrow is gonna make me cry that is like (laughs) (laughs) that was so great that's it That's, that's awesome that's our Guess Christopher Flaccus
2: Wait has he not heard it before?
1: <laughs> I no. I read over it yesterday uh, but I yeah. I kind of didn't get to read the whole thing so there's yeah that's she the even package got the right red there. patches in there yeah. that shows yeah. she that's, really that's noticed. <laughs> yes.
6: That's it. And that's what they do at defunct. They notice? Yes. They write. They hold they on to you their cry essence
2: in a good way. <laughs> I yes. Sure. I know I see I do want to talk about your team the team that works together over there because as we know none of this works unless you're bound to each other it's
1: I mean it really is like a family I mean sometimes we're at each other's throats sometimes we're sick of seeing each other but you know we work so well together and we love each other and it's just yeah it's crazy I mean it's outside of you know maybe like a romantic living partnership that's the most intimate I've ever felt with another human being and it's kind of this shared bond that you know we find printed word capable of you know real magic and that's almost a religious kind of connection
2: it's something to always come back to when the shit gets hard as it will as it does
1: it definitely is and probably will get harder i i mean i don't think it's an exaggeration to think that you know writing will become our salvation in the next few years Mm. i mean as it has in the past you know in, in world wars and all kinds of difficult situations
2: But it's going to get better, right,
1: Chris? It might get a little worse before it gets better, but it will get better.
6: (laughs) But writing makes those spaces where we could inhabit
1: until it gets better, right? Someone told me that there was an old curse or a blessing, depending on how you look at it. It It's just, may you live in interesting times. For a writer, I think it is a blessing, but it might be kind of difficult to live through. But we've got material. I mean, life is providing us. We could write about this conference, and it would be... I think I might I think I will
2: no, no one will believe us though they'll just be like that shit didn't happen I know
1: I mean the drama of it was like oh my god if this were being workshop, people would be like no no you can't do that thank you, <laughs> thank you so much you guys are the best
2: you're the best thank you so much Chris we wish you all the luck with you guys over there at Defunct and you. and your own writing too
11: My name is Janae Darden, and I am a writer. I'm also a journalist. I'm a reporter for NPR station in the Bay Area called KALW. Um, I'm also a host there, too, and I cover arts. And I'm the author of When a Purple Rose Blooms. And I'm also in an anthology, We've Been Too Patient. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here. I'll be presenting on the panel about that.
2: Mm-hmm. Awesome. I want to know, I, I want to know, I well, first of all, I would just like to say it's so nice to highlight All of the people who come to AWP, it's not just for writers only, you know. I mean, we've had people in that chair today and in the past who are doing all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about your broadcast work. So I've been a journalist for about,
11: I think, I counted 17 years. It's been that long? And so at KLW, I cover East Oakland. Okay. which is uh, which is Oakland but the east side that's where I grew up is, is the east side of Oakland so and that's been really interesting because there's so many changes that have been happening in Oakland with gentrification. Um, we've seen with the house as, as the housing prices rise we've seen it you know a rise in homelessness. I don't know if you're all familiar with the moms for housing um, who occupied a house in West Oakland that was owned oh, by no, yeah yes, that was, yeah it. that was owned mm-hmm. by um, a real estate company. So, I mean, just, you know, it's just so many issues going on right now. So it's just interesting to be a reporter during this time. And I'm from Oakland and just covering just all the changes that are happening. But before that, I was, before I came to the Bay Area, I was working for NPR at their West Coast Bureau. And I also worked for Marketplace. Yeah. Oh, so wow. yeah. Then you the market then the market crashed. Then I had to move back home with my mama. <laughs> and <laughs> and then I started working in mental health advocacy. Oh, the irony. Yeah. Oh, gross. It's, it's nothing like being in your 30s and saying "Mama, I got to move in." Oh, but no. she she welcomed me with open arms and chores to do. And <laughs> <Mom>. so <laughs> No I owe her a lot of thanks. So yeah, yeah so yeah. she welcomed me with open arms and then Yeah, I worked in mental health advocacy and I hosted a podcast called Mental Health and Wellness Radio
0: for oh, the organization
11: so I was still able to do audio even though I wasn't working in news then I left there and was able to go back to news
2: does um you told that story about the uh the moms occupying the house in Oakland when you read stories like that how does that impact the writing you do that's a good question how does it impact the writing I do
11: because I'm writing for audio you know which is different than like writing for print so and as you know you, you all work in audio it's, it's telling the story with words and also telling it with sounds too mm-hmm. so when i'm writing so when anytime i'm doing audio story i'm thinking about how do i tell this story with words and with sound i always see it like a painting i can't paint to save my life but that's how i see it. like just you know what colors in my brain to it you know what images what
2: shapes so i always take that into account when i'm doing stories mm-hmm. and the same for the the words that are meant for a book someday right right absolutely yeah, yeah.
4: So, can you tell us a little bit more about where the when the purple rose blooms? And you've got poetry, you've got essays. How do you how do you get those two in a book together? And how do you how did you make it happen? So
11: the book wanted to be here. And, <laughs> this book, this, this book, good. this book came into the world because it wanted to be here. So I had I was pitching another book on black sexuality, and I and I was getting rejected. And so my my mentor, Lenard Moore who comes he didn't he didn't make awp this year but he's from north carolina and he told me he's like janae you have essays and you have poetry why don't you put it in a book you have stuff already and i said oh i didn't think about that so so i put so i i you know i got i looked at all my work that i've been doing and i and i put it together and so it's a book about just my experiences as a black woman with mental health Mm. with love and sex and so I'd had all these poems and essays, and I put them, and I put them there. And so I'm published with Nomadic Press. They're a, a small press in Oakland. And so you know, I was right at home. You know, I felt right at home with them. Oh, and that's so, good. and so she wanted to be here because I had no, I had no idea or even thoughts of making, of putting together a book of poetry. But I've been writing poetry since I was a little kid. But
2: yeah. yeah. And then how would you find your way to Nomadic Press?
11: I knew about them because they were always hosting events in Oakland and in the Bay Area. And so I was going to their events and then, you know, they had a call for submissions. And so and so I listened to my mentor and I just get, gathered everything and submitted to them.
2: How'd you find your mentor?
11: I found my mentor, that was 20 years ago? <laughs> about 20 years ago. So the National Book Foundation, they used to have a summer writing fellowship program. All expenses paid. And you would go to Bennington College in Vermont, and yeah, so they yeah. paid for you to go. And so that's where I met him, because he was oh, one of wow. the the teachers there at that, at that writing fellowship. And so we've been in touch ever since. Yeah,
2: it's such a great success story that kind of puts a something tangible in your hands about these mentorships that are so important in the oh, writing yeah. community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it's not just about getting to X fellowship or or. Right. X retreat mm-hmm. is about the people you meet and the community you make there that sticks with you even as you leave oh yeah
11: and absolutely yeah you guys are on
2: literally opposite sides of the country. Op- yeah mm-hmm. and we had and
11: the first time we saw each other since when we were in at bennington was awp when it was in dc a few years ago and i hadn't seen him in years so it was uh, so great yeah, to connect um, yeah yeah but we like- always kept in contact writing and email and phone calls
2: We've heard that story a couple times already today Okay, wonderful. Who, yeah, you know, who, from uh, authors who live out in rural parts of the country and they get into AWP and they meet friends that maybe they've only met and talked with over Twitter and, and that's a great, great service that AWP um, provides that so we get to be able to do that. Yeah. Super, super cool. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Well, it's so nice to meet you and be introduced to your
11: work. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Thanks, for, like I said, thanks for being here. I'm really glad AWP is having a podcast here. I think Aww. that's important. I'm an audio girl, so I'm happy to see that. Oh, yes. And then I saw that exhibit oh, on, on wow. blindness and and, mm-hmm. on, and the stories there were really just impactful. So I'm glad to see an audio presence here.
2: Yeah, so, yeah. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, it's a great medium.
11: No, it is. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And As a NPR nerd, it's nice to know somebody in broadcasting
11: oh thank you (laughs) yes and i still have allergies so (laughs) i I am a human being (laughs) all right today we wish you all the best of luck thank you thank you good luck to you all
6: this has been a live recording at the 2020 awp conference and book fair in conjunction with bloomsday literary
2: hey folks there's been a lot of talk about big numbers in recent days, big numbers that are terrifying and incomprehensible, but I've got a number that's big and not terrifying at all. It's 433,357.72 dollars dollars and cents. That's the number of dollars raised by bookshop.org for independent bookstores since its inception this January, 2020. If you're buying books, please buy from your local indie bookstores directly from publishers or from bookshop.org. Artists and bookstores need your support now more than ever. Uh, Daniel the Blazer. So we are failing We're naming naming our fashion segment, the AWP fashion segment, Mm. The Green Carpet, Fast Fashion with Daniel, (laughs) or Daniel the Blazer.
1: I think Daniel the Blazer would be my vote too. See, there Lily, you go. And I came up I'm with that gonna crawl, like last crawl into second. The
2: table. You're on last no. second.
4: We, we need you, Lily. We need do, you. No, no, you don't need me. I, yes. Green carpet. Who cares? You know. <laughs> I'll just go become the green carpet. I'll just lay down and melt into it.
2: No, <laughs> oh, don't do that. <laughs>
4: don't do that. Is it bad if I, admit, I agree that the Blazer is better? But I'm just you know, you sensitive. You die on that hill.
2: You don't agree. You die on that hill. <laughs> are on that carpet. <laughs>
1: have an aqua green.
2: Aqua, that's the word we were looking for. Someone kept saying turquoise. I
6: don't think uh, it's turquoise. No, it is turquoise. Mm-mm.
2: No, that's a that's an affront to turquoise things everywhere. <laughs>
10: uh, yes. I know,
2: I see I do want to talk about your team the team that works together over there because uh, as we know none of this works unless you're bound um, to each other and you're throwing phones at each other on the floor. uh, Out of love Lily. (laughs) I know you dropped that phone out of love but Chris tell (laughs) me about all the love. I could sing the poop song that my child sang to me in a video (laughs) as a mic test. Do you want that foo? The title is Poop, 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 Poop. (laughs) And fun fact, guys, if you have an Alexa at home, you can ask Alexa to play the Poop song. And you too could be filled with the joy and laughter that only the word poop gives to three-year-olds. How many times can I say soup to nuts in one weekend? <laughs> can I just <laughs> keep saying soup to nuts? I made a drinking game, game out of
1: it, and that's why I don't feel good right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, drink every time soup soup to nuts yeah, yeah, comes yeah, up? Yeah,
2: yeah. Why is yeah, the, I don't, Like, Chris, is there another phrase that we could use that actually does the same thing as soup to nuts without saying soup to nuts. Literally all I can think about right
1: now is soup to nuts. That's like just repeating in my head. (laughs) There probably is one.
2: (laughs) Yesterday we drank every time I said the word inevitable, which uh, Lily pointed out, I had said 15 times. And we also drank every time food knocked over a sign. So we've been drinking a lot. None of this is going to make it to the final. Not a damn word of this is going to make it to the final cut. You'll see. You'll see. AWP will never do this shit with us again. (laughs) Um,
6: This is the last AWP effing Shakespeare joint venture podcast
10: (laughs) Ever.